Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and today with David Hepworth, who, you know, one of the things we like to do on this podcast is not necessarily talk to the most obvious people. You know, we've had plenty of brilliant historians who've talked about, you know, the books they've worked and the research they've done and academics and what have you. But David Hepworth is a is a legendary um music journalist and writer wrote the brilliant 1971 never a dull moment and overpaid over sex and over there how a few skinny brits with bad teeth rocked america which is a personal favorite of mine um and also this new book which i've been reading and this is why i've I persuaded david to come on abbey road the inside story of the world's most famous recording studio and it is absolutely fabulous it, it's brilliantly written brilliantly told and just for anyone who loves music of course, Abbey Road is a kind of centre point of our our musical education for all the recordings that were made there. Not, of course, just Sergeant Pepper and 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 Beatles tracks, but but a whole host of amazing other people, from Jacqueline Dupre to, well, people who were recording stuff in the Second World War. So, David, thank you for coming on. It's um, it's it's lovely to be talking to you. A pleasure pleasure the great thing about your book abbey road and this is what got me thinking about kind of music in the wartime um is of course that you go back to its origins how it's this lovely house in the sort of suburbs of 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 london not suburbs they're sort of very affluent part of london and although emi the company has its big factory out at hayes in middlesex what they realize is all the arty types are in the center of town and so you don't want to make them travel too much so let's have a recording studio right in the heart of london Yes, and they got this property at number three, Abbey Roads in St. John's Wood, which in those days had a, a reputation, I think you would describe as, I don't know, raffish, slightly disreputable. It's where members of parliament used to yeah. keep their mistresses, apparently, back in the day, because <laughs> it was handy for the house, you know. Uh, so yeah. similarly, uh, Abbey Road was a handy place for musicians to be able to get, get back and forth to. And they yeah. settled upon this house, because primarily it was really a grand house, but it had a huge plot out the back, a huge garden, which was big enough for them to build an enormous studio on. And this is uh, studio number one to solve. Studio number one, which is still there today and is still operating today and was, uh, you know, built to accommodate full scale orchestras. You yeah. know, it was opened in 1931 by Edward Elgar, you know, playing his, his greatest hit. 
land of hope and glory. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, of he, and there is a wonderful newsreel. You, you catch on YouTube, wonderful newsreel of him saying to the the orchestra, "Gentlemen, please play this as if you've never heard it before." Because <laughs> they're obviously <laughs> rather rather bored with playing it. Anyway, you know that that was the basis of the work they did was recording the kind of classical canon. That was the the task that they set themselves in the thirties. Then they had two other studios. Studio One, which is just for small for small recitals, and then Studio Two, which was um, for dance bands, if you like, right. and which was yeah. subsequently taken on in the 1960s by the Beatles and they yeah, acquired yeah, yeah. legendary status as a consequence. I mean, one of the things that I found so fascinating, and again, I just never really thought about it, is is how you you, you physically, technically make a record and in the 1920s and 1930s from 1931 for when abbey road road opens there's a kind of sort of limited way of doing it isn't that incredibly limited because you're 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 doing it you know direct to disc pretty much you know so yeah anybody's memory so, so, yes how does that work i mean how does that work well because you you're you're going straight to the master disc from which you will make the stamper from which you will make the records and so you're and making this is wax yeah yeah you're making an impression on wax you know and so every well, the thing that everybody remembers about the early days of recording those those who wrote wrote about it was uh they associated it with perspiration for two reasons <laughs> One that the musicians, a, a, a band or a small orchestra, would have to be gathered very close together in order to be round this kind of horn that re- into which they recorded. And right. the other thing was immense pressure on the individual musicians not to screw up, because if you screwed up, they couldn't fix it in the edit. They basically no. stopped. They threw away the disc very expensive thing and then had to start all over again and i don't think we can properly imagine the the kind of the pressure the musicians were on under in those in those early days you know because in in the classical canon because they were only recording as much as four minutes they had to really carefully divide up the music so that it could be accommodated in four minute slots you know so you know this is this is old news but the reason that lps came to be called albums is that classical pieces used to be recorded across a number of 78s which would then be accommodated in a kind of leather wallet which was referred to as an album you know so if you wanted to hear beethoven's album of discs you heard it over an album of discs and you you also if you played it you were probably never sitting down you're you're always up near the record player ready to turn it over and have the next record ready to play you know so it's an incredibly difficult process and um and when they first set out to to record beethoven's piano sonatas they sent out to do it in the 30s and Arthur schnabel was given this this very worrying commission to do this it took absolutely ages and he, he writes these uh, heartfelt letters to his wife about just the pressure you know if he played something <laughs> slightly wrong everybody would go oh stall over again, Not again. And, and at one stage he went out and into abbey road and wept in the street the sheer the sheer pressure, you know, and, and yeah. that was what happened in those days of recording. It was an immensely disciplined process. It had to be. And also, don't forget, most of the, those musicians, when they've been born and started playing, they never expected to hear 
themselves ever. The first people who go... Well, you were very interesting about this, about the opera singers, the first opera... You know, the... They Dave thought Nelly, it was Melbourne spooky. People. Yeah, they, yeah, they were worried about it, you know, because it it subjected them to a level of scrutiny that they'd never known, you know, because mm. you'd been a live performer. That's what you'd yeah, yeah. done, you know, and nobody yeah. had gone back and said, oh, you're a bit flat in, you know, bar 36 or something. It didn't happen. Yeah. But as soon as you got a recording, it's pitiless scrutiny, you know, yeah, absolutely. Over, a period, over a period of time. And also it's interesting to me, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book when I was asked to do it was that uh, – I'm really interested in what a recording is. And I think yes. it's different from a piece of music. And people have got a habit of talking about the two things as if they're interchangeable, and they're not. Yeah. They're no. different things. You know, John yeah. Lennon famously said, some people like music, other people like records. I like records. And I'm with John Lennon on this. I yeah. like records. So they absolutely yeah. fascinate me. And particularly with classical records, you were seeking to make a recording that was not like any musical performance that had ever taken place because it couldn't yes. be. You know what I mean? You're yeah, trying yeah, to make yeah. an idealized version of a, of a, of a record, of a, of a performance. But it wasn't yeah. like any particular performance, you know. No, it was the, it's a performance that's unique to that moment in time. And that's the great joy of records, isn't it? You're, 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 it, it is a moment in time captured forever. Uh, and, you know, that's, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, on the latest book I've been working on about the, the, the campaign in Italy, for the first time properly, I've actually been using photographs, not just for inspiration, but I've actually been describing photographs. So I don't sort of go, there is a photograph of, and it's got a bloke in it, and he's kind of, you know, loading up a mule. You say, you know, a mule train, they're loading up, the the, the horse, you know, the, 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 the beasts all kind of staggering up the stony path or whatever. But you're using that that moment that has been captured with the with the with the shutter of the camera in that split second you're you're using that to transport a reader back to that moment in november 1943 on a mountainside in italy or whatever it might be and it's kind of the same thing with a record you know when you're listening to tomorrow never knows or whatever that is that moment that has been recorded in studio number two there it is, but even more so in the 1930s and 1940s, where it's a one-take wonder. But also, you're right about the photographs, but the difference with records is on top of that capturing of a moment, you have the fact that we listen to these things hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of times. <laughs> yes. yeah. Therefore, as a consequence, these records – whether it's the Teddy Bear's Picnic or Tomorrow Never Knows or Taylor Swift's new one, yeah. they're insiders, these records. Yeah, and they're yeah, imprinted yeah. upon us. Yeah. We know them better than the people who made them. And the people, who made them, the people who made them, in my experience, are always slightly haunted by the fact they they listen to the records. They probably like you read your look at your books five years later and think, you know, I could have done that better or whatever. You probably don't. don't, don't. But musicians always think I could have done that better, and they well, always, you, so you, you, they, they mean, always you, like to do it again. And we, as the public, think, no, do not touch it because we we have insiders the thing that you did. Don't mess yes. with it. You can't yeah. make it any better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I'm, I'm going to give you. I'm going to quote from from Fume actually, David, because you're writing about the late 1930s here, and you go a great record such as they were starting to make in Studio Two. This is in the late 1930s. Has something which a song alone doesn't have. It has an atmosphere. It has a mood. It has many of the qualities of a dream, and I love that because you're absolutely bang on the money. That's exactly exactly what it does have. A magic is being created, isn't it? In, in the in the 1930s, it might to our modern ears sound a bit tinny. But for me, who's obviously, you know, immersed in the Second World War, that has a kind of a quality all of its own because it's transporting me back to a time which was before I was even born. But there I am. I'm suddenly in the moment of with that dreamlike quality of Al Bowley kind of, you know, crooning out the very thought of you or whatever it might be. Yeah, definitely. And it's and- magic. It is, it is magic. It's a, it's a piece of magic. How, how can someone be who, who is singing and playing instruments in a studio in Abbey Road in St. John's Wood be coming to me through my ears 80 plus years later? It's just, it's a miracle. It, it is an extraordinary thing. And, um, yeah, the, 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 um, you know, I always think that, um, you know, with re- recording, the things you hear are, are triumphs of the technology at the time. Al Bowley, the very thought of you in the late 30s. And you can't do it better in the 40s. You can't do it better in the 50s. Why? Because no. the technology is slightly too good. You know what I mean? It, it is, it's done in a certain way. It's a product way. of its time. It's a product of its time, you know, and I think that, that, that applies to loads and loads of things. And, um, you know, Al Bowley is a classic example with the, uh, what's the tune that's used on the, um, you know, Stanley Kubrick, who was really finicky about these things. He picked, um, Moonlight, the Stars and You by Al Bowley. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. to be used in The Shining, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, to summon up that idea of the sinister past of yes. the Overlook Hotel. Yeah. And yeah, this yeah. is what went on in there. And you only have to hear that nowadays. And you can sort of see the sinister face of Jack Nicholson in the corner of that picture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it takes so you true. back. And it takes yeah. you back because you've heard it. Thousands of times, you know, it's a yeah. li- and, the, and our relationship with records is not like our relationship with anything else artistic, no, I don't think. I think that's, I because think that's it's, so true. it's all about just one thing, one, one three minutes, 40 seconds or something <laughs> that is just <laughs> inside us and it's perfection. Yeah. And this is a, often causes tension with artists because the truth is, if you've made a record and it's been an enormous hit, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to the listeners. It belongs to the, yes. the people out there. They've got it. Because we can all do this. We can all close our eyes right now and hear the sound of our favorite record. We don't actually need to put it on. It's completely inside us. Why is it inside us? Because we've listened to it thousands and thousands of times. Yes. The, op- the opening strains of Strawberry Fields. There it is. Just- <laughs> Whizzed into my brain, uh, but but so, so so in the 1930s, suddenly you've got all these these, these stars of 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 song kind of sort of emerging. You know, pop stars, frankly, for one of a better better phrase. And obviously, these people, you know, had had an had an audience before, just as a, a live audience playing in clubs or whatever, and, and 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 in the music halls and so on before that. But suddenly, the ability to put them onto a record that that that's taking them to another level, isn't it? And so you do have all these stars that are emerging. I mean, Noel Cad's already a star, 
obviously as a as a playwright as i suppose film star as well as well as a songsmith but people like al bowley and people suddenly you know ordinary jazz bands are suddenly the the, the singer is suddenly coming to the fore in a way that they they were just part and parcel of the band beforehand absolutely and they and the first major technological innovation that transformed music was the electrical microphone prior to that to be to be recording you, you had to be a belter you had to be right. the kind of person who had a kind of megaphone at the front of a jazz band you know right. uh, whereas with the electrical microphone you could uh, uh, and you only have to imagine the sound of al Bowley or the sound of bing crosby Right. Um, these people it, it suddenly they they drew near to you. They were singing yes. right into your ear. They were yes. singing into your brain in yeah. a way that if you listen to a singer from the nineteen twenties, they weren't doing it at all. They were bellowing very often. Whereas these people were confidential, you know, and they become and actually before they called pop records, uh, they're very often called personality records. <laughs> Which I think is a really telling distinction, yeah. you know, because yeah. ne- everybody loved Bing Crosby and Al Bowley, but not necessarily because they were fabulous singers, which they were, but also they were kind of fantasy boyfriend figures. You know, they, yeah. they had, they had yeah. personal qualities. They, they were funny. They were a bit saucy. You know, they were confiding. Yeah. So all yeah. that opens up and that's what pop music is all about. Pop music is yeah. all about music plus personality and the, and the marriage of those two things. So, yes. you know, the, the electrical microphone made it possible. Recording, you know, buying records made it possible. But also, don't forget at the same time, radio is, yes. is changing the world. <laughs> Absolutely so, changing so, the world. So who invents, who invents the electrical microphone then? Uh, good grief. I don't know off the top I mean, of the head. Not the person, but I mean, I mean where, where, does it, they, where does it come where from? Where you find with all these things is that they're very often being simultaneously developed in England, the United States, and Germany. And they're all, they're all got their own slightly different versions of it. And, I've got know, to say, I thought it was the Germans who got there first on the election. Well, they probably microphone. did. They probably but, did. But it's the same with radar, for example. You know, you've got, you've got, got you know, what's and what developing rdf radio direction finding in the uk but you've also got you know people doing it in italy and people doing it in germany and you know again it all happens at the same time and same exactly the same with the jet engine you, you know you've got people developing jet engines in the uk and and in germany at pretty much the same time and who actually kind of you know got the first one to work is it's also so who gives it a na- who gives it a name is very often the very key thing about this <laughs> yes. stuff. You know? But the, anyway, the electrical anyway. microphone transform, trans- transforms everything. So, so w- when wartime comes, there is already um, endemically a culture of popular songs. Oh, definitely, and, and popular. You know, that's singing. part of part of the part of of everyday life, and particularly for young people who are going to be in uniform and heading overseas. Yeah, but I think we very often lose sight of the fact that actually, for years, and even when I was a kid, records weren't played that much on the radio because of kind of needle time agreements with the musicians' union. You know, it was a, it was about live playing. You know, even right. when I was a kid. It was the Northern Dance Orchestra were, were doing right, the pop hits right. on the on the on the British radio. You know, it wasn't until I don't know the last thirty years or something that records really went mad on British radio. Uh, but uh, but these people turned up turned up on the radio performing live on the radio. But um, 
you know, the, 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 the wartime it really brought to the fore uh, a number of, uh, of British um, early pop stars, you know, all of whom, all of whom, even I remember from my grandparents and my parents, were always referred to as our so and so. It wasn't Gracie yeah. Fields; it was our Gracie Fields. Our it wasn't, Gracie, yeah. It wasn't George Formby; it was our George. You know, and Vera then was. It was as if she lived down the road. You know, so <laughs> there was there was that kind of there were there weren't stars in an odd way, you know, because they were brought to you by the radio. And the thing about the radio was it came into your home, obviously. Yes. So it was, it was, you know, they always say, what's radio all about? Well, it's about company. And, uh, and that, that provided company and comfort. And, uh, and so, and, you and know, a sense of home. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it, it, it is, it is, they're British singers, they're, they're, or American in the case of, you know, Frank Sinatra or, or, or Bing Crosby or whatever. But, but, they're people that are familiar, that are part of your everyday culture by, by the end of the 1930s. But they are literally coming into your living room because of the radio and because of, you know, record players and, and, and so on. So it's all – my point I'm, I'm, I'm getting to is, is that by the eve of the Second World War, popular music, pop songs and popular singers are absolutely part of – day-to-day life for a large proportion of people and inevitably younger people yeah because younger people are more accepting of of change and so all those people that are now wearing uniform they're aware of of bing crosby and al bowley and and gracie fields and all these people and they play are going to play an incredibly important part in keeping up morale and keeping the troops going in the next six years, that's I suppose that's the point I'm trying to make. Definitely, and uh, and there was interestingly there were always um, you know uh, discussions in the higher reaches of the BBC or the government as to as to what was the best kind of music to to provide in wartime. Should it be stirring martial music, hearts <laughs> yeah. of oak, or whatever? Or should it be the very thought of you or, you know, when I'm yeah, cleaning yeah. windows or whatever? Yeah. And there was always that kind of tension going on, you know. So they, the BBC used to have a dance music committee, didn't they? They used to used yes. to vet the things that were – and George Formby would occasionally have to turn up and uh, and play his latest song – for this committee, yeah. he'd be he'd be looking at the uh, the sheet music in front of them and probably missing the Dubon Trondres or whatever. And so, you know, there, there was always that tension between is it better to be stirring or best to be, you know, kind of cosy. And um, cosy won, I think. I get. Well, the I think cosy definitely wins. And funny enough, I think it wins with the Germans as well. I'm going to yes. hold that thought right there. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break, and when we come back, we'll get back to well. Let's let's get back to what the Germans are doing. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with David Hepworth. And we're talking music in the Second World War. And the sort of starting point was the, 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 that amazing studio, Abbey Road, um, in St. John's Wood in London, and, and the recordings they were making during the Second World War and before. Um, songs that then sort of carried the troops through 
once they got out into the battlefields and the oceans and the skies and all the rest of it. Um, um, and we were just talking about, about the Germans. I mean, really interesting, isn't it, that, that Germans did go in for their martial music. Of course they did. And you only have to look at, at, at De Wochenschau newsreels, which was the Nazi state newsreels they used to put out on, in the cinemas. And it's full of kind of incredibly dramatic music. But interestingly, the, you know, the British and indeed the Americans are doing, and Canadians for that matter, are doing exactly the same thing when they have their newsreels. It's kind of full orchestras playing kind of dramatic music music but actually the stuff that really hits the, the spot for the troops is is you know it's lily marlena isn't it's it lily marlena. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know one of the greatest songs ever written and, and it's so simple isn't it and and how funny that 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 song should really strike a chord with, with german troops but also then get adopted by the duke forces as we call them dominions uk and empire you know the the, the, the british army forces as well well, one of the first things that Gracie Fields does um, at the beginning of the war is, is she the EMI, they have a mobile recording unit. Right. And, she, and she's dispatched to some barracks somewhere. You know, and we they, should just say that EMI owns Abbey Road. Absolutely. And uh, and and they they start recording her singing to the troops, and yeah. what and uh, and if you look at the labels of these records, it says Gracie with the troops somewhere in England, and you invariably on these recordings here, the on the on the final chorus, you hear voices tentatively at first, and then with more confidence. Right. joining in you know yeah and it's a very it's incredibly touching thing to hear and yes, must have been incredibly touching for people for gracie listening. fields <laughs> and also for the people listening at home because here's yeah. gracie somewhere in england or in france yeah. or whatever with our boys could it be your husband could it be your brother Whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. And when, when those voices joining in. And it, it is a great time of kind of community singing, isn't it? Yeah. Which, no, which is. is gone from our culture. <laughs> but yes, well, it's interesting, David. You've, 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 you've hit something there because, you know, on this recent work I've been doing in, in Italy, there's lots of diaries about them all having a sing song. They get in the back of the truck. They've got to go up, you know, they've got to go up the Adriatic coast. It's a long journey. It's raining outside. So we all had a big sing song and, you know, they basically sing all the way. And that's, that's how they pass the time and keep going. You know, there's accounts of, um, I've got the diary of a guy who was the regimental sergeant major of the same artillery unit that Spike Milligan belonged to. And at Christmas 1943, they all have a big sing-song. They have a big bit of a do. They put on a bit of a show. And they play, you know, obviously Spike's playing his instruments and stuff. He's playing his trumpet or whatever. Uh, um, but they're all kind of hammering. And someone else is on the piano and I mean a good knees up and a good sing-song. And then, you know, as I'm saying, I was looking for all these photos. I mean, there's a whole load of photos in the Imperial War Museum under the Italy section from 1943. There's George Formby, you know, ding, 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 on his ukulele, you know, play, playing to the troops and stuff. I mean, let's just talk about, about Gracie Fields and 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 george formby for a moment because they're they're terrific popular things they were before the war weren't they but the war also sort of takes them up a level does it you think? definitely definitely does um although gracie fields <laughs> interestingly she moved to america halfway through the war because she was married to an italian a second husband right. was an italian and uh, who would presumably have been interned as an enemy alien, or probably ended up <laughs> on, on the Isle of, of Man, Isle of Man, or whatever. Uh, yeah. And so she, interestingly, it, while in America, she re-records her um, her biggest hit, or one of her biggest hits, 
the biggest aspidistra in the world, which right. is an extraordinary thing there ever was a record called that. And yeah. she adds, it's she not adds an a, title, is it? She adds a verse at the end um, that goes, "They're going to string old Hitler from the very highest branch of the biggest aspidistra in the world," which. <laughs> which kind of very much put her in the, put her in the forefront of this. George Formby, um, there are some films made at the uh, the beginning of the war where he's uh, he's visiting the troops and so forth. George Formby is very active in terms of Isn't getting he? out there and and, and on it, Sundays and on Sundays. Yeah, they people observe. Gets a lot of criticism uh, for that, doesn't it? Gets a lot of criticism, like and he said he would he would uh, he would only stop doing that if people stopped dying on Sundays. You know that that was his yeah. attitude. So put that and in the, your pipe and smoke it. Yeah, and the interesting <laughs> thing to me is that they're both really closely identified with just one very small area of, of the United Kingdom, which is you know, industrial Lancashire. Yeah. Not, and I can't not even the track. North. It's, it's not the North. It's, it's industrial Lancashire. It's one little bit yeah. that, that was seen as a representative of the old values, you know, the old yeah. industries. And yeah. also, don't forget, they, they, the propaganda purpose of this was to, is to make people feel that the work that they might be doing in factories was benefiting the war effort and all that, you know. So, but and both then, of them don't just stay in England, do they? I mean, they're, they're always going off around the troops. I mean, they're in Tunisia, they're in Italy, yeah. they're in the Far East, they're in Burma. You know, they're going, they they really do travel. And at an at an age where where traveling is actually pretty dangerous. I mean, you know, Leslie Howard gets shot down and killed in in June nineteen forty three. You know, flying back from entertaining the troops. So, you, you know, it's, it's a high risk business. So it's you, a high risk business. And uh, well, of course, Glenn Miller, who comes to the of course the UK comes a cropper in in 1944, you know, is, is brought and does over record it, in Abbey Road, doesn't he? Does record in Abbey Road under the kind of command of you know it was done for the U.S. forces. He only got to come. It was Eisenhower who said he was to come. You know, it was such yeah. an important thing. His band uh, you know, it was part of the part of the, the the forces, and they they came to Britain, and the band. I couldn't help thinking about this. These guys are kind of blameless trombone players or drummers or whatever thought that they were, they were going to keep well clear of their, of gunfire. And they are billeted in Chelsea in 1944. Just the flying bombs are coming over and it's, yeah. it's the most dangerous possible place to be. <laughs> and so they've, they're very quickly zipped up to Bedford, you know, to keep them, yeah. keep them out of harm's way. But the idea is they're going to go to, you know, fly to Paris, I think, to, to start playing. And uh, Glenn Miller sets off ahead and is um, never. It's a cloud bank, goes straight into the sea. Yeah, they just, they, 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 they're, they're flying low to, to keep under the radar and stuff. And they, um, um, and I think almost certainly they just, the, the horizon just, it's it's very difficult to to see, and you don't know how low you are sometimes. And the and the um, altimeter doesn't always work under kind of you know hundred feet something like that. You, you know you just don't get it at all. I think I think they just went straight in. But just go back to back to Formby and, and Gracie Fields. I mean, both of them were they were they were pretty big names before the war, weren't they? I mean, so they already had a kind of a fan base. So oh, def- oh, definitely. But the war, the war fixed certain people in the public imagination. In the, in the way that it continued for the rest of their lives. And, you know, Vera Lynn, 
it, yeah, she'd only been dead a couple of years, hadn't she? You know, yeah, yeah, and amazing. was still incredibly famous. Yes, yes, she was. Just as a consequence of her association, you know, she was the force of sweetheart. And, and, and wasn't she? Yeah. The, isn't she the only person ever to have a number one at a hundred? Very probably. As far <laughs> yes, I'm sure she would be. Although, yeah, it probably wouldn't make much money. But the thing about George Formby, David, is is that you know he's also he's a, he's a comic artist, isn't he? I mean, you know, his his, his songs are uh, they're funny and 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 they're wry and they're they're cheeky and and you know they're they're kind of sort of slightly subverting society, aren't they? And all those sort of things. And there's a sort of and a, 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 there's a sort of joie de vivre about the whole thing that he does. You know, it, you you can't. You can you can you can love George Formby, you can hate him, but you can't you can't help smile when you listen to kind of you know in the Middle East or when you're cleaning windows or when I'm cleaning windows or whatever it might be. Oh, absolutely! And uh, so you can see why he's such a hit with the troops. That's there's a point. kind of giddy you know giddiness that comes over in the recordings of George Formby, you know, in things like "Imagine Me" in the Ma- on the Maginot Line. You know, yes. <laughs> it's a very very idea of it, you know, uh, and uh, his voice. Sounds gawky, you know. If, yeah, if yeah, it does. It said does. to apply to a voice. The interesting thing about, about Gracie Fields, George Formby, and Vera Lynn, and and probably most of the the British um, music stars of the time associated with the with the war, is they're not remotely cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, there are a few that are. Well, no, not those that. three. Not I would. I would yeah. say they're not in the kind I mean, of Dino Shaw kind of way, are they? You get the kind of lounge lizard types, you know, Hutch and uh, you know, and so forth, and uh, and Ken Snake Hips Johnson, you know, who was the <laughs> who was the, the Snake Hips, who was tragically yeah, killed in the in the bomb, the Café de Paris, the bomb that landed. No, the not Cap- the same one that killed Al Bowley. No, uh, no, because Al Bowley's killed later, isn't he? Killed kill later. No, it's not the same one. And uh, and I think there's a film being made about this called Blitz. Steve McQueen's making a film called Blitz. And I think one of the central events is uh, is the death of Ken Snake Ips, uh, on the, on the landing on the. Uh, well, Dan and of Barry. course, and Al Bowley dies in the war as well. Al he Bowley dies. dies. Oddly, he's gone to America. It'd been quite a big deal in America. You know, they opened the Rainbow Room at the top of the Rockefeller Center. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly even Ray Noble, and but his star had somewhat fallen by the time he was back in in the UK um, during the war. But he was he was still playing with um, a guy called Jimmy Mezrin, who was a who was a guitarist. And uh, one of the last recordings he made at Abbey Road is, is uh, I think it's a Gershwin song called When That Man Is Dead and Gone. And the man is Adolf oh Hitler. God. Anyway, he played a gig, I think in Reading, somewhere to stay for the night. And, uh, and no, he preferred to go home to his place in St. James's and was killed by, yeah. you know, by a bomb. A bomb. Um, Unbelievable, really, and it's so tragic, isn't it? I think he's. I think Al Bali's absolutely amazing. I love his. Oh yeah, I think he's he's just incredible. And as I say, as I was saying to you before we before we um, started recording, I used to have the very thought of you as my my ringtone on my phone for a long time. I've now got Django Reinhardt, but but you know. Um, that's okay. You've got to sort of mix it up a little bit. Um, we haven't really talked about Django Reinhardt and part part he plays in the war, but 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 obviously he wasn't at Abbey Road. But Noel Coward was. Noel Coward's recording, isn't he? And and his songs are. I mean, they're still again. They're they're also funny and knowing and clever, but in a completely different way to George Formby, obviously. Definitely, 
but but also they're kind of they're sort of celebrating the kind of clanky nature of the war effort occasionally. You know, well, I, what they're what they're celebrating is British insouciance. Yes, that's what yeah. we like to think that we're all kind of it's all terribly casual that we're sort of amateurs amateur. making up. Yeah. Uh, we're going along, and actually we're not at all. Uh, um, we're, we're kind of ruthless, hard bastards, which are uh, and, and and it's you know that that kind of sort of Captain Mannering. Uh, um, dad's army kind of fairly hapless amateur kind of thing is just a studied act but 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 in reality but noah coward is absolutely top of the tree in that and obviously don't let's be beastly to the germans is just hilarious even even today when you put that on it's still very very funny my personal favorite is still could you please oblige us with a bren gun Which is, I'm sorry, I cannot recommend that too highly. That is like a, a Jimmy Perry script for Dad's Army about 40 years before Dad's Army was thought about. You know, it's because uh, apparently Bren guns were in very short supply. Well, you'll know more about this than I do. And uh, the Home Guard were known for wanting them. And uh, could you please oblige us with a Bren gun is a list of all the implements they've got instead of a Bren gun. <laughs> you know, stuff that they ransacked from local manor houses, but it, it's it, it's faultlessly, faultlessly done. And again, it's the combination of the personality and the and the song. You know, the notion that anybody would ever do that better than Noel Coward is just ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's, they are it's, really, really funny. Really, really funny. Uh, I mean, it's funny because because um, my son Ned, we were getting him to play at um, our We Have Ways Fest. Um, which we hold each year uh, and we get some of our kind of sort of favorite speakers and, and lots of hardware all together in a field um, somewhere near Silverstone. And, um, uh, and and I persuaded Ned to come and do a few songs. I said, but you know, you need to do kind of sort of period pieces. You need to do kind of wartime songs. So he said, okay, well, what, you know, what kind of ones, what, what one should I do? So I gave him the very thought of you and dream a little dream and various other sort of 1930s numbers. But I also gave him, <laughs> don't let's be beastly to the Germans <laughs> to, have, to have a crack at and put his 21st century slant on it. But it was really funny compiling that list of songs, which obviously included Gracie Fields and Vera Lynn and, um, and, um, uh, and George Formby as well. And, and to give them another look and, and look and, and listen to them afresh because, I mean, obviously, you know, you and I, David, we, we've sort of grown up with these songs sort of in the background, hovering in the background, you know, our parents and grandparents listen to them and, all, and, and so on. And so they're already there, aren't they? But, but when I then transport those or, or, or contextualise those songs with what I know about the Second World War, they take on a whole completely different meaning as well. But they also kind of transport me back to a time before I was born. But they are these, again, I keep going back to these sort of moments in time it's fabulous to listen to them now and, and listen to them again. I just, I, you know, they, they do demand a second listen and third listen and a thousandth listen. You know, the thing about music, I often think this, there's no point going chasing it. Music finds you. It finds you at the <laughs> yeah, point that do. you're, you're receptive to it, yeah. you know? And so this one thing I've discovered being of great age and having spent a long time listening to music, you're far more liberal as you're older than you are when you're 21. When, yes. When you think you heard everything there is to be heard. Yeah. You know, 
when you listen to loads of music, all the all, all that you learn is how little you know, and you know yep. that there's far more of it all the time. And you also learn to listen with sympathetic ears to things made in a way that things are no longer made. And uh, yes. you know, yes, so if you yes, go yes. and listen to to Noel Coward and and you know, I've been to a marvelous party or a room view with a view or anything like that. It's yeah. just I'm awestruck by the the, the quality of, of of the artists and what they were doing because it couldn't be messed around with afterwards. It no. was a performance. You yes. did it once, and yeah. that was it. You know what I mean? Um, oh where, yeah, no, and I love all the stuff even in the 1960s where where you know to, to record a kind of a, an A side and B side of a 45 single. You got three hours. <laughs> Oh, yeah, go off you go. I mean, just amazing. But but you know, for anyone who wants to kind of understand the Second World War, of course, you need to read your history books and and sort of get stuck into your Anthony Beaver or whatever. And you want to kind of look at a little documentary, and perhaps you want to watch Band of Brothers or whatever it might be, or or one of the old black and whites, you know, um, um, the Cruel Sea, for for example. But you also want to look at photographs. You want to look at old movie foot, you know, old film footage. You know, those moments. Just look at what those troops are doing in those film in those newsreels see how they're interacting with one another and they're not so very different they're all mates together you know you can see them in the lighter moments you can see them in the tense moments you know their reactions the past is not a foreign country when you're looking at these young lads it's it, these are people like you know young lads today but also listen to the music and and you know listen to <laughs> could you please oblige us with a brain gun or 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 George Formby, or Gracie Fields, and listen to any of those songs, or Al Bowley, you, you are transported back to that that moment. You had you just have a little bit more understanding about that moment than you did before you listened to it. Uh, and I think all that's absolutely, completely and utterly fascinating. But, of course, one of the things when we do listen to those songs is... They sound a little bit tinny to today's ears. They sound a bit grainy, you know. Uh, and, of course, you know, this is in an age where you are still recording onto wax and everything and, and, and you know, recording by today's standards. Very advanced, though, it is by 1930s technology is actually quite primitive. But there is a big change about to happen with the end of the war. And, of course, that's because of a discovery at the end of the war of what the Germans have been up to. Yeah, the Germans had been uh, pioneering recording to magnetic tape. Isn't that amazing? I mean, (laughs) you know, as soon as I read that in your book, I kind of thought, of course it was the flipping Germans who invented that. I mean, you know, and then I started thinking about BASF. This is okay, it. Which was a, which, oh. which was a, which was a, a substrand sub, sub of, well, it was absorbed by IG Farben. Yeah, it, you know, all, what, the, what all these I always buy, I, you know, you had TDK, didn't <laughs> this you? Is it. tapes, and you had BASF. When I was the editor of Smash Hits in the 80s, these were our biggest advertisers, the same German chemical companies. <laughs> Who, just amazing. Who, who sold all the blank cassettes that all the people who used to record their Human League albums on. Yeah. They were all produced by their same, their same companies. But the, 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 the leading German machine was a magnetophone. And this was found by the Americans. You know, they, they managed to get some of these machines from German radio stations. And they'd always wondered why they listened to recordings of hitler and there was no surface noise you know because your normal thing would have been being played off a record well it wasn't it was being played off tape 
And, um, you know, they could transport speeches all over Germany quite easily during the 30s and, and during the wartime. And so, you know, this, this, um, machinery is kind of rushed back to, to the States, first of all, where one of the people most, uh, most advanced in, in, in adapting this stuff is Bing Crosby because. Yeah. Tape, magnetic tape, had huge implications for the American radio business. Mm. Because don't forget, America had different time zones. And yeah. so <laughs> it was always difficult to do something mountain time, western time, whatever. Yeah. And so the idea of being able to record the Bing Crosby radio hour or whatever and send it across the country was an immensely attractive thing. Yeah, and And then the British... Also brought brought their version back to to the UK. EMI, very much old school British company, had very much a kind of not invented here attitude, which was whenever anything came in, they'd say, "Well, that's all very well, but it needs to go off to our place in Hayes and be tested for about a year before we're happy <laughs> yeah. that it's quite good enough for us." But of course, you know, they, they George Martin, you know, famously produced the Beatles. And loads of other people joins EMI in the early fifties, and uh, you know he's one of the first generations to be able to take advantage yes. of because suddenly you manic. can edit, can't you? Suddenly you can edit, and uh, you know George Martin makes his name before the Beatles with comedy records. So all your favourite Peter's, Peter's out, Bernard Cribbins, all all that stuff, Flanders and Swan. It's yes. all George Martin. And a lot of what he did was, you know, George Martin, it, at that point, he realizes the record isn't finished when the artist has left the studio. Yeah. We'd start making the record then, you know, yeah, we'd do yeah, things yeah. to it. And famously, he had to do this with, he made a recording with Spike Milligan and the young Peter Cook, uh, which around about the time that the Bridge on the River Kwai came out. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is so funny. I and they, Spike Milligan's a massive friend of the show, I have to say. You know, we're, well, we're there you fans, go. Big, big, big and, fans. Al is a huge fan of Spike Milligan. And, uh, and so they record this entire pastiche of Bridge on the River Kwai and then make the foolish error of asking the film company if they object. And, of course, the film company <laughs> do object. And so George Martin then has to go through all the yards and yards and miles and miles of tape and take out the opening uh, letter of every of every use of the word why, and that's why you can still buy to this day Bridge on the River Why. <laughs> which, is, which is really funny in itself, of course, because, you know, you immediately think of the River Why in Wales or whatever, don't you? And it's a shame that they didn't do that in the first place because actually it's very, very, it's, it's even funnier. But, um, yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, David, listen, thank you for that. I mean, I've, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed that conversation. It's just brilliant. I'm now going to go and listen to Could You Please Oblige Me With A Brain Gun um, uh, uh, and When That mad is, Man Is Dead And Gone. Um, and I suspect you'll have a whole host of people rushing out and listening to George Formby. And, 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 and so they should, frankly, and Al Bowley and The Very Thought Of You and Noel Coward and all the rest of it. I mean, just... Uh, amazing artists amazing performers and amazing moments in time so so thank you for that and of course um we're recording this on the uh when is it 19th of june and you and i are going to be chatting a bit more broadly about abbey road and possibly getting onto the beatles and pink floyd and stuff um uh when we talk at short valley history festival on first of july for that which i'm also hugely looking forward to i have to say so if anyone wants to come and meet you come down to that um but in the meantime david thanks so much that was absolutely brilliant cheerio everyone 